Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray again for us one more time. Father, help us now fix our attentions on you and your word. Help us now be focused. Let your spirit work in us and help me again be clear so that we might understand the riches of Pentecost and what it means to be truly Pentecostal. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Um, welcome again to the retreat. It's amazing to see all of you here. Um, this session is going to be on the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. We're going to be picking right off where Tazar left us off yesterday. Tazar went through the Holy Spirit and his role in creation, the person of the Spirit in the Trinity, the role of the Spirit in creation, that he is the Lord and giver of life, that he's the animator of everything, and everything has life because of him. And then Tazar went on then to the role of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the work of Jesus. Okay, so we're going to pick up right where we left off from yesterday, and then we're going to talk about the next quote-unquote phase of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and that is in Pentecost, perhaps one of the most controversial, um, the most debated section of the Bible, especially in recent times, right? With the Pentecostal movement on the rise, what does it mean to have a Pentecost? What does the, what does the event of the Pentecost signify? What does it mean in redemptive history? Now, we read uh, the passage that narrates the Pentecost event, right? We just read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. But we're not going to go through this text verse by verse, but I want us to keep this narrative in the back of your minds, right? Jesus has just ascended. The Holy Spirit came in the day of Pentecost, as it was called, and then people started to speak in different tongues, different languages, uttering the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another in their own languages, even though they were common Galileans. And there were many languages represented there, and people started to know the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ in a clearer way. And then Peter spoke up, right? Started to explain what was happening. And Peter was saying that what was happening in Pentecost was actually something prophesied in the book of Joel. So what we're going to do today is just discuss what Pentecost really means. And there's four headings in your notes, right? We're going to talk about Pentecost and redemptive history, the Old Testament prophecy of the last days, which is the backdrop of Pentecost, and then the Pentecost and the already not yet scheme. And then we're going to discuss, if we have time, hopefully, two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. If there are two baptisms, or is there two baptisms, or is there only one baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? And we're going to take a look at the particular Acts passages that talk seemingly about two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, I realized as I was looking at the schedule, today's session, session two, is 10.30 to 12, and then session three is 1 o'clock to 3. Think about these two sessions as one big session, and whenever we left off here, I'll pick up on session three. All right? So don't be worried if you're like, we're only in point two, but we're like an hour in. It's okay. Don't be freaked out. We'll have time for Q&A as well. And like yesterday, Taser will come up for the Q&As as well. So that's where we're going to go today, okay? Pentecost, what it means. Pentecost, reason of history, Old Testament prophecy of the last days. Pentecost, already not yet. And then we're going to discuss whether or not there are two baptisms. Okay? This is an especially crucial um, series, a crucial presentation, a crucial understanding for us to grasp. Because, again... Pentecost is one of the most misconceived, misunderstood events of the Bible, right? I still remember it very vividly. When CCC was just in seed form in what was called the gathering back in the day, we, we hosted the first Bible studies, and one of the things that people were talking about in Jakarta was, quote-unquote, the third Pentecost. I, was still, I still remember it very vividly because everyone was talking about it. Pentecost become, 
it was talked about as if it was just a kind of revival that reinvigorated people's faiths. Pentecost, in other words, is oftentimes misunderstood and misconceived as a common, repeatable event that ought to be imitated, ought to be repeated for believers in different ages and different times. It's just a stand-in for a revival. When people think, here's a great Pentecost that's coming, or the Pentecost will start again, people just think it's a great revival that's happening. People are getting converted. People are seeing the gospel in a new way. People are coming into the gospel in masses, right? And so this third Pentecost idea came up because they would argue that Acts chapter 2 was the first Pentecost, and then in Los Angeles, in Azusa Street, in, I think, 1920s, the second Pentecost happened, and then the third Pentecost, lo and behold, was going to happen in Jakarta, right, in Gora Buncarno. And um, there, was, there, was a, there was an anticipation that there was going to be a revival. And every church, we're often told, ought to anticipate this. We ought to want it. We ought to want to participate in a revival of God. Who doesn't want a good revival? Who doesn't want more people to be converted? Who doesn't want more people to hear the gospel? Who doesn't want more people to join the churches, right? So Pentecost became a kind of stand-in for simply that. A repeatable event, a revival where a lot of people heard the gospel, a lot of people became excited about the gospel, and therefore came to the churches and heard the gospel anew and afresh and continued in new life and obedience, right? So who doesn't want that? But I want to argue today that if you understand Pentecost in that way, as a repeatable application of salvation that really is summarized as a revival of sorts that ought to be pursued in every generation, any time, in any place, that every church should desire a Pentecost, actually completely misunderstands the significance of Pentecost and actually diminishes the significance of Acts chapter 2. It diminishes it because we make it something that isn't sufficient. We make it something that isn't epoch-shaping and epoch-shifting and um, an absolute change in redemptive history. We, we make it as something that we can achieve through human means. And so we want to understand Pentecost in regard to the scope of the whole of Scripture, in regard to the scope of the whole of the Bible, and see that Pentecost is actually a once-for-all event that is non-repeatable, that is epoch-shifting, in other words, it's, it's a, it's a, it marks a shift in redemptive history. It's an irreversible, epoch-shifting, um, redemptive historically moving event that cannot be emulated, cannot be imitated. It is a divine work of God and is irreversible. And therefore, we shouldn't expect a second or third Pentecost because only one Pentecost suffices. Right? Just as there is only one exodus, just as there is only one resurrection of Christ. Christ doesn't need to be resurrected again. Just as there was only one death of the Messiah, there was only one Messiah. And there was only one Abrahamic covenant which was not passed. Right? So let me just think about, we're going to, these things will become clear hopefully as we go on. Okay? Now, so first, under the first heading, Pentecost and redemptive history. When we think about um, the Bible, and um, what the Bible is revealing to us, we need to think about the Bible in terms of two categories, broadly conceived, okay? The Bible reveals to us, first and foremost, the history of salvation, right? This is what theologians call the Historia Salutis. Historia Salutis. This is the history of salvation. In other words, the Bible reveals to us God's works and what God had done in history to redeem a people for himself. 
It is redemption accomplished. Right? The Bible, in other words, first and foremost tells you about what God has done for you. It's not first and foremost a rule book for you. It's not first and foremost a, a book that tells you how to become better people. It doesn't first and foremost tell you about techniques or things like that. It tells you first and foremost about a narrative about what God has done. It's a history, right? Why do you learn the history about anything? You learn the history about something to be informed about who you are in light of that history, to be informed about where you came from, what happened in the past, which should inform you in the present, of course. But first and foremost, it tells you about what God has done in an unrepeatable fashion, right? The history of salvation. The second thing the Bible tells us is the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis. This is all in your um, notebooks, right? These two terms. The history of salvation and the order of salvation. If the history of salvation tells you about redemption accomplished in history, redemption done by God, totally done, sufficiently done, but the order of salvation tells you about how God applies that history to your life. Right? Applies that history to your life. So one example, easy example about the distinction, right, um, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ happened as part of the history of salvation. In fact, the pinnacle and the climax of the history of salvation, right? Christ had came, he had lived the life he should have lived, died the death he should have died, and he was resurrected on your behalf. That's history. That's something that happened. That's something you can repeat. In fact, if you ask, well, then how should I die and be raised again? You're missing the point. You're not your own Messiah. You're supposed to behold the Messiah of Jesus Christ, right? This happened in the history of salvation. But then, as the Babylon reflects on this event, that Christ had died and he was raised for you, the Bible then asks the question, how did his death and resurrection then benefit you? That's asking an ordo salutis question. That's asking an order of salvation question. You're not only therefore asking how has God accomplished redemption, you're also asking how that redemption is applied to you. You get the distinction there? But first, notice you have to understand what God had done before you can understand how it should be applied to you. You've got to understand the history of salvation before you understand how it is benefiting you, right? So, what this distinction also maintains is that the history of salvation is all-sufficient and unrepeatable. There will be no more messiahs because Christ is the full and complete and true messiah. The history of salvation therefore tells us the story and history of God's works and redemption that is unrepeatable. God had done it all. The order of salvation which applies that history of redemption to you is repeatable. Okay, so even though there will be no more messiahs, even though Christ had done he, Christ had done the job, he died and he was raised up, right? The application of that salvation, the application of his life, death, and resurrection, is given to every believer in conversion, right? So Edgar gets converted, and then the next week later Mike gets converted, right? What what does that what does that mean? There's so conversion is a repeatable event, right? So because Edgar is converted. We can't expect to say no more conversions will happen. All right? that, that's, that, that would be missing Edgar's, pers Edgar's person. He's not part of the history of salvation, though he's benefiting the history of salvation. Just as you can't say, for example, there's going to be another Moses. God will call up another prophet. Why? 
Because Moses was part of the history of salvation. He was in one phase. The Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic phase of redemptive history has passed. You can't say that there will be a new Israel and a new Moses and a new Exodus. That phase of redemptive history has passed. There will be no more new Moseses. But the application of the history of salvation is a repeatable thing. God applies the history of salvation to different people in different times and different ways, right? Now, the common misunderstanding of Pentecost is that they would locate Pentecost not in the category of the history of salvation, but rather in the order of salvation. So Pentecost, for many, is not about God doing something in history that was epoch-shifting, just as the Exodus was epoch-shifting, but rather the Pentecost was an application for your own personal piety, for your own personal conversions, right? Instead of something in the history of salvation. So to make this just even clearer for us, right? I mean, the history of salvation is the narrative of the whole of Scripture. So you have creation, you have fall, then you have redemption in its many phases, the climaxes in Christ, and then you have consummation, or the new heavens and the new earth. Just to make this extra clear for us, let me ask us a question. I want some, some interaction, right? When Abraham was given the command to circumcise all the male children, is that a history of salvation event, or is that something to be applied for us today? Okay, don't be shy. History, right? It's a history of salvation event, right? In other words, the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision happened in the past, which prepared and signified and pointed to the work of Christ. It's happened in the in a phase of the history of salvation and no longer applicable today in a sense, right? We can say that Christ fulfilled that part of redemptive history, and Christ is the true son of Abraham, and the benefits of Christ get applied to us. But there's a real sense in which when you're reading the Abrahamic covenant, you're saying this is what God was doing in that phase of redemptive history, and this is how God is pointing to Christ through the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense, right? So you're not going to go around and say every male now has to be circumcised because of the Abrahamic covenant, to use a graphic analogy, right? How about the Exodus? Why do we no longer see Red Seas being parted? Or, not, or just not Red Seas, I guess, seas being parted. Why do we no longer expect that to happen? Does that belong to the history of salvation or the order of salvation? History of salvation, right? In other words, what Moses had done when the Israelites were in Egypt, when they were in captivity, and Moses was sent as the prophet of God so that they would, he would redeem the Israelites out of Egypt, take them across the baptism of the Red Sea, so-called the parting of the Red Sea, into the Promised Land, that was part of the history of salvation, which signified to Christ, the true Moses, right? So there's a real sense in which we're not going to expect a new Exodus or a new Moses, because Christ is the true Moses. Does that make sense? So when you're reading the Bible, you're actually already presupposing these categories. You're never just reading the Bible and saying, oh, okay, this was what happened to Moses. I got to go and, you know, be a better Moses and go to Israel and make sure, go to Egypt and make sure if there are any Israelites there, I'm going to rescue them. 
Okay, that's a silly analogy, right? Why? Be- because you're, you're seeing that that is part of the history of salvation and not part of the order of salvation. And, and then th- the moment you start to read the Bible that way, just one side note of an application point, right? The moment you start to read the Bible that way, the Bible doesn't become primarily a book full of good advice. It's not primarily about you anymore. When you're reading the Bible, you're not trying to say, Moses had these, these qualities and these kind of missions. Oh, here's how I become a better Moses. You're no longer saying, Abraham had this much faith, and here's how I become a better Abraham. Here's the kind of faith that I need to have. Suddenly, when you're reading the Bible in terms of these categories, and putting them into the context of the history of salvation, you're suddenly thinking through, through these, again, you're thinking through these categories, you're, you're suddenly reading the Bible in light of what God is doing. You're asking the question, how is this pointing to Christ? How is this moving forward, God's plan of redemption to, to save sinners? You're asking the questions of what God has done objectively for you. There's nothing you contributed to that. You see what I mean? It, it's, a, it's a paradigm-shifting way of reading the Bible. But oftentimes, that's not how we at first read the Bible. We come up and we read the Bible, and then we say, how does this apply to my life? That's your first question. How does this apply to my life? That, that, that's instinctively, in our pragmatic culture, that's how we come to read the Bible, right? How does this apply to my life? And that's why you don't know what to do with the Old Testament. You're, you're like, I don't know what, I had a conversation once, I don't know how to read the Old Testament, Gray. I just, I like the Psalms. That sounds pretty good. But I don't know how to read the Old Testament because it seems so far away. It seems, I can't apply it immediately to my life. But what if the Old Testament isn't primarily about an application for you, but history of what God had done. And again, what Tezar said yesterday, it's about beholding the beauties of God's work. Okay, so those two categories are really important for us to keep in mind as we go forward. So I want us to understand, basically, that Pentecost is part of the history of salvation and not part of the order of salvation. Pentecost is part of the history of salvation and not part of the order of salvation. All right? Now, if it is part of the order of salvation, I'm sorry, part of the history of salvation, what does it signify? Right? If Abraham signified that God is still faithful to his people, even though his people had ruined themselves over and over and pointed to the the true Abraham, Christ, the one with the true faith. If Moses' exodus signified Christ, who was the true Moses, and these are phases of redemptive history that pointed to the real thing, what about Pentecost, which happens after Christ? If much of the history of salvation in the Old Testament pointed to Christ, how does Pentecost actually function in the history of salvation as it points back to Christ? All right? So here's where we got to understand the whole paradigm, that, and, and therefore we, got, we understand Pentecost in light of that paradigm. All right? Now, before the fall, what did Adam and Eve uh, what, what, was, what did God command Adam and Eve to do before the fall? Be fruitful and multiply. Exactly. Be fruitful and multiply. What does that imply? It means, at least, childbearing. Make sure that they spread all over the earth, right? Which means you're populating the world, subduing the world for the purposes of glorifying God because they're image bearers of God. That was a mandate that was given to Adam from the very beginning in the creation, Right? The fall, however, ruptured that mandate. In other words, the fall was Adam and Eve disobeying God, and therefore that mandate to be fruitful and multiplied was stifled a little bit, right? That 
pinnacled quite a bit in the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? What happened at the Tower of Babel? Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, instead of going forth and subduing the rest of the world, instead of going forth and, and spreading the image-bearing functions of humanity throughout all of creation, humanity instead said, we're going to gather up in one place, create a tower for ourselves, unified in one language, unified in one people, create a name, a single name for ourselves, and then in the Tower of Babel say, we as a human people are unified and we would reach the heavens even apart from God. That's what the Tower of Babel stood for. So the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was the radical reverse of what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the creation mandate. So instead of being fruitful and multiplied, they were unifying themselves so that they would gather up in one tower. And then what did God do? God came down. God spread all of the people from the Tower of Babel. He confused them in their languages, made sure that no one could communicate to one another fluently and cohesively because of the confusion of languages. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel, is confusion, right? So that they would actually go forth and spread from one another and not be united under one language. Now, you might think that that is a curse. and In fact, it was. It was a punishment and a curse. But actually, in this curse, God was still advancing the original mission that God had given to Adam and Eve. God was actually in the curse against Babel, in the verdict against Babel, God was actually furthering the mission to advance the, the, the creation mandate for Adam and Eve. Everyone was to be fruitful and multiply and in different languages spread all over the world, right? So that's what, what God was trying to do. And throughout the Old Testament, you see God's impulse to do that, God advancing his mission so that the whole world will be fully full of image bearers that would actually glorify God. And Babel tried to reverse that, and God actually advanced that mission when he reversed, or when he, when he um, gave the verdict against Babel. So the Old Testament actually prophesies us a time where the Lord will dwell with his people in the whole world by his Holy Spirit. As a fulfillment of what God was doing with Adam and Eve, as a fulfillment of God's command to Adam and Eve, the world will be so full of the image bearers of God that he will dwell with his people by his Holy Spirit so that every nation and tongue and tribe would worship God. Contrast that to the Tower of Babel event. So, so the Lord will dwell with his people by his Spirit. People from every nation and tongue will know him and the reversal of the Tower of Babel would actually happen so that the whole world would know God despite the many different languages, despite the diversity of cultures, despite the diversity of um, ethnicities. So, in Joel 2, 28-32, which was cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2, it says this. This is what one of the minor prophets said. And it shall come to pass afterward that I, sh I will pour out my flesh, my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. That's exactly what Peter said had cited in the Pentecost sermon when he was explaining what was going on when every people, remember in Acts chapter 2, every people were speaking in their own languages and people's different languages unified in the same gospel. Peter came up and explained to them what was going on. He cited Joel chapter 2. Well, Joel prophesied that it shall come to pass that he will pour his spirit on all flesh, that sons and daughters will prophesy. In other words, everyone will have access 
to the Spirit of God. Not just priests, not just prophets, but everyone will have access to the Spirit. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be done whom the Lord calls. This is a significant prophecy, especially because Joel was, again, a Jewish prophet prophesying to the Jewish people, right? The Jewish people had always prided themselves in being the people of God. Israel was where God resided, and everybody was supposed to see and come to Israel. Now, even though that was part of God's redemptive history, Joel is saying there will come a time where anyone, anyone would call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, not just the Israelites, Gentiles, everyone, every nation, every tongue, and every tribe will come, and they shall be saved by God. And so, Israel was never supposed to be a national um, representative of God's people forever. Israel was never supposed to be the center of God's movement forever. God had never had a nationalistic agenda forever. And in fact, you see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament. There were Gentiles here and there coming in, right? Ruth, the Moabite, Rahab, the prostitute. These were all Gentiles that were seeking the God of Israel. But now Joel is saying to the people of Israel, Listen, there will come a time where you don't have to be an Israelite to call on the name of the Lord. There will come a time where all you have to do is call the name of the Lord and he will be saved. There will no longer be, in other words, a mediation from Jerusalem by the priesthood, by the people of Israel. There will be direct access to the Holy Spirit of God. No longer was he bounded up in the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. No longer was he bounded up by Jerusalem. In other words, everyone had access to God, which means this was a complete fulfillment of what God had been doing in creation, right? Again, fulfilling what God had commanded Adam and Eve to do. God was actually doing the very thing that Adam and Eve was supposed to be doing, but failed to do, bringing all the nations to know God, subduing the whole world so that everyone would know God. All right? That's the Old Testament prophecy. So notice, again, in Isaiah chapter 2, you also see this kind of prophecy. It's not just in Joel. And Isaiah chapter 2 is also quoted quite a bit in the New Testament, it says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days, or in the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice, not to Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem. There's this movement of God, yes, initially working through Jerusalem, but now suddenly, the word of the Lord doesn't tell people to go to Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the beginning point and the starting point of God's work in redemption, but it never was supposed to end there. And God is saying, there will come a time in the latter days where the word of the Lord will not demand people to go to Israel, will not demand people to go to the temple, will not demand people to go to Levitical priesthood, but rather the word of the Lord will independently go forth from Jerusalem. It starts at Jerusalem, 
but it goes forth from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears to pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The word of the Lord becomes the unity within the diversity of nations. The word of the Lord comes forth from Jerusalem and brings into unity the many nations so that they might know God. In other words, God's rule and fellowship with God becomes universal and no longer bounded by sin, geography, and nation, right? This is something we've hit on in the Gospel of John series at CCC. The fact that we now worship Jesus as to the Samaritan woman. What did the Samaritan woman say to Jesus? Lord, I know where to worship. Everybody has to go to Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say in John 4, 24? There will come a time where you will no longer worship in Jerusalem, but you will worship simply in spirit and in truth. In other words, there will come a time where your theological identity is no longer dependent upon allegiance to a Jewish culture. And there will come a time where your sin will no longer bar you from the Spirit of God. There will come a time where every nation will know God without the mediation of Jerusalem, even though it began with Jerusalem. And notice, if it, if it continued to reside only in Jerusalem, that means the mandate given to Adam and Eve was never fulfilled to begin with, right? Some people are, I was in Manila, again, this is still fresh in my memory. There was a, a well-meaning guy gave me posters by giving money to Jerusalem. I don't know if this is something that you're, you're aware of, something that you were people doing, but people are giving money to the nation of Israel because they were God's chosen people, because that's where God resides. That's where God is supposed to be. That's where you go to meet God. And so some people go to Israel, not just for historical purposes. I'm fine with that, with that. but as, as a kind of pilgrimage. This is where all these things happen. This is where God's spirit is uniquely in. You feel the spirit of God more present there or something like that, right? So when I was in Manila, these people were handing out these posters during this conference, and they were, they, were, they were saying, give money to Israel, support the purposes of God by giving money to the political nation of Israel. Notice, if you're doing that, you're missing completely the point. Because if God was still centering all of his activity on Israel, on Jerusalem, that means his purposes that was given originally in Adam and Eve, which was never revoked, interrupted, but never revoked, was never actually fulfilled. But what had God prophesied in Joel and Isaiah? There will come a time where people have direct access to the Spirit and the Word of God that comes forth from Jerusalem and no longer limited to Jerusalem. Okay? Is that clear where the Old Testament passages are, are, are pointing to, how they're pointing to that? So, so notice creation, right? God had given a mandate to Adam and Eve Fall interrupted that, so people tried to unify against God, not spread out. This was pinnacle in the Tower of Babel um, event. And in redemption, God reverses the Tower of Babel, makes sure that people spreads out in different languages. And then in, 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 in these Old Testament prophecies, um, they predict a time where every nation, tribe, and tongue would actually come to know God directly, not from the mediation of Jerusalem anymore. Okay? That's the history of salvation. That's the, that's the redemptive historical storyline. Does that make sense? Now, Pentecost, therefore, is a New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. It's a New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. 
Pentecost is that moment where the Spirit of God actually enables people from every tribe and tongue and nation to come and know the true Messiah, Christ Jesus. And the reason why the text is trying to make clear in Acts chapter 2 that there are people from many different cities, many different nations represented there, and many different languages for proclaiming the one gospel of Christ is Peter and Luke's way of saying, look, all of those Old Testament prophecies, what Joel had said, what Isaiah had said about all the nations coming to know God, no longer through Jerusalem primarily, but through a direct access to salvation is being fulfilled right then and there. This is the Spirit, in other words. Why was there fire around people, right? But they were not consumed. The Holy Spirit, who, who was residing always in the Holy of the Holies, and only the priests come to the Holy of Holies, and people who came into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament died. They were consumed. They were burnt up. But suddenly, in Acts chapter 2, fire was residing on these people, and they were not burnt up. You see that? They were not burned up. In other words, these are Gentiles, foreigners, non-Jews, non-priests, non-kings, non-prophets. Therefore, they were able to experience the very presence of the Holy Spirit, which resided in the Holy of Holies, free from the mediation of anything else. They had access to God in a way that is unmediated by any normal human Israelite priest. In other words, Pentecost is the ultimate vindication of Jesus' fulfilled salvation. Jesus had so fulfilled everything that God had predicted. The Pentecost applied that in a new way. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true prophet. So that now there is no longer any need for a temple. No longer need for a priesthood. No longer need for any prophet because he was the final word of God. He was the representative of man to God. He was also the true king. So no longer did you have to present animal sacrifices through a priest to even get near the Holy of Holies. Now you have direct access to God. That's what Pentecost is. Okay? Now if that's what Pentecost is, notice, however, there's, there's still a kind of tension. Because even though Pentecost is the fulfillment, it's that event where there's, it's, 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 it's fulfilling all those prophecies, all those predictions of the Old Testament, even though that was the case, there's a real sense in which the prophecies are not yet fulfilled, right? There are other people within the midst of the Pentecost event that looked at them and said, these people are crazy, these people are drunk, these people don't know what they're talking about. So there's still a tension where you get a foretaste, a real fulfillment of the Spirit's coming, which was predicted from the Old Testament. You really do get a foretaste of that, but at the same time, there's a real sense in which that coming of the Holy Spirit has not yet been completed. It's an already and not yet paradigm. Okay? So if the Old Testament prophecies seem to be all-encompassing, the whole world will know God, the whole world will know the Spirit, the whole world will know the world, Word of God, and that really is felt, and you're given a foretaste of that in Pentecost, there's still a real sense in which the whole world does not yet know God, right? Because that's just happening in this one little event, and even in this one little event, you know, in proportion-wise, right? It's the rest of the world still doesn't know, know God. So you get a foretaste of it, but not yet the finalized stage of it. 
So the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies is revealed to take place in two phases. Here's, here's what's going, here's what's happening in Pentecost. This is sort of in your notes. But, but if, if redemption could be divided up, right, into several different phases where we have the theocratic nation of Israel representing God as one phase of the Old Testament that anticipated the true Messiah, the true priest, the true prophet, the true king. And then the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was raised up, vindicated as the true Messiah. And Pentecost is right here. And the new heavens and the new earth is at the end of all things in consummation. And the new heavens and the new earth is a fulfillment of the mandate of God given to Adam and Eve, where the whole world really is um, enjoying the knowledge of God. The whole world really is subdued by image bearers of God. So creation, final new heavens, new earth, the whole world is filled with God's glory. Pentecost is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. So what's going on at Pentecost is, is, is not only a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, it's also anticipating still a final phase of a new heavens and a new earth where it's climactically fulfilled in a physical sense. So, so I tried to draw this in your notes. Um, the arrow of the already not yet, it should be pointing back from the new heavens, new earth into Pentecost, okay? Pentecost, so not, not to the Christ event, but to Pentecost. Um, it was precise in the Microsoft Word in my notes, but I don't know, those formatting challenges. Here's what's, what's happening in Pentecost. If the prophecies envision a complete new world where every nation, tribe, and tongue knew God, Pentecost gave a foretaste of that, right? The Spirit really did intrude in a new way that, that gave all peoples access to God. The intrusion of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost not only fulfilled the prophecies, but also showed us that the prophecy wasn't going to be fulfilled in one go. It's not as if at Pentecost the whole world was converted, right? There was still a real mission given to Christians, a real mission given to the apostles, and that's going to be key when we talk about the two baptisms later. A real mission given to the apostles and the disciples for them to spread out and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Lord, right? So Pentecost, yes, was a fulfillment of the prophecy, but it revealed that the prophecy was not going to be fulfilled in one phase. The prophecy was going to be fulfilled in two phases. First in Pentecost, and second in the new heavens and the new earth. Pentecost, in other words, is a foretaste, a down payment, an intrusion of the new heavens and the new earth's power, yes, but not yet the climactic fulfillment of it. You get what I'm, what I'm saying here? So yes, it was a fulfillment of a prophecy, but it also showed that the prophecy was not going to be fulfilled in one go. So Pentecost fulfilled the prophecies, but the prophecies also still pointed further to new heavens and new earth. And what Pentecost was is this picture of this new heavens and new earth and the spiritual power within it where every tribe, nation, and tongue perfectly obeyed God, perfectly knew God, 
by the Holy Spirit of God is that the Spirit who will be perfectly present in the new heavens and new earth, not just internally in your spiritual walks, but physically, everything will be glorified, intruded the powers of the new heavens and new earth into this one singular event, Pentecost, so that they and us could get a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. That was a lot, and, and, and I hope you're, you're, you're following still with me, okay? Here, here's, here's why Pentecost is an irreversible, epoch-shifting, redemptive, historical, non-repeatable event. Pentecost was what Meredith Klein called an eschatological intrusion. Let's try to say that with me. Eschatological intrusion. Eschatological intrusion. What does eschatology mean? Eschatology. Study of the last things, right? Eschatology pertains to the final days of God, the last things of God, right? The last things, in a broad sense, could refer to this present age up until then because Christ was the final word of God. This was the redemption was fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ. In a broad sense, that's true. The last things could also refer to the new heavens and the new earth, right? What Meredith Klein, a 20th century theologian, said was that in Pentecost, the Spirit was given to you in a new way, in such a way where the powers of the new heavens and the new earth, which was prophesied fully in Joel and Isaiah and texts like that, intruded into the lives of the disciples and the apostles. Such that the church, the church who now enjoy the benefits of Pentecost, because why? You have the Holy Spirit within you, and you look around this room. Many nations are represented here. You are enjoying the, the applied benefits of Pentecost. The church, therefore, is enjoying a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new humanity indwelled by the Holy Spirit who knows God and who come from different languages, tribes, and nations, and tongues, and therefore are enjoying a little foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the church is enjoying today. And Pentecost, therefore, is what Klein says, the Spirit takes the powers that's going to be fully glorifying the new heavens and the new earth, pierces that into human history today. And it's a down payment, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a foretaste, it's a promise of what's to come. Okay? Now, if that's, what Pentecost is cosmically, okay? This is going to bleed into um, our session on regeneration and salvation in session three. Just think about if, if, if Pentecost is a cosmic event which anticipates a future cosmic event, it's an already, um, um, for, it's an already foretaste of what's coming. Think about your life. If Pentecost is in the cosmic level what happened in your life in a micro level, okay? When you first became a Christian, you were given new life, right? We're going to see in the next session, the Bible calls that regeneration. What does regeneration mean? 
generation generation could could refer to cre to creation, right? Genesis, beginning, regeneration, rebeginning, recreation. In other words, when you became a Christian, your spiritually dead natures and dead hearts was made alive and made new. There was a real spiritual resurrection that happened in your life, such that you suddenly had a new principle of life that could obey God and you had direct access to fellowship with God by the Holy Spirit. You notice that? Your spiritual resurrection is a foretaste of your bodily resurrection. What does Paul say is happening in your life as a Christian? The Spirit wrestles with the flesh, the old man, right? In other words, because of the Spirit creating a new life within you, you have to battle the residual sin in your life. Your sin is no longer identified with you because you have a new life principle, but you have now the ability and the new life given from God, a new power of the Holy Spirit that is really eschatological by nature so that you can actually fight sin and live this new life. But that gift of new life anticipates, your, in other words, your spiritual resurrection anticipates your bodily resurrection, where you will no longer have a body that fights again what you want. Right? You will have a body that will be completely in unity with your heart's desires, your innermost being's desires. You no longer will wrestle against yourself. Right? And you feel a foretaste of it now. There are moments in your life where holiness and sanctification seems like yeah, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. There are other moments in your life where you're feeling like, I don't know why, I just keep messing up and messing up and messing up. You just got to struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle, right? You feel that tension of the already and not yet. You feel the principle of life, of new obedience within you, so that you can actually obey God, but it is not yet climactically fulfilled yet. You don't yet have a body that is glorified. Pentecost, friends, is what happened to you in a cosmic level. Pentecost was the first intrusion of the Holy Spirit where he actually took that new resurrection life and gave it to the disciples and the apostles in Jerusalem first. And then through this moment, this intrusion, the whole world could now become disciples of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, hopefully if that does not yet make sense, some quotes will help us, okay? Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, says this. Pentecost publicly marks the transition from the old to the new covenant and signifies the commencement of the now of the day of salvation. In other words, it's really saying that Christ's work of salvation is done and now the Spirit, sorry, the Spirit is going to apply what Christ had done. It is the threshold of the last days and inaugurates the new era. Now as the bond of union to God, the Spirit indwells all who believe as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit points us to the mediator Jesus Christ. This is a development of epochal proportion. The Spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation now indwells disciples in this specific identity as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of our Lord's words, otherwise impossible to comprehend. It is for your good that I'm going away. 
That's from John 16. So Ferguson goes on. Pentecost, like the visible manifestation of every coronation, is by its very nature sui generis, in other words, one of a kind. It is no more repeatable as an event than is the crucifixion or the resurrection or the ascension of our Lord. It is an event in redemptive history, Historius Ludus, and should not be squeezed into the grid of the application of redemption, Ordos Ludus. The coming of the Spirit is, therefore, the evidence of the enthronement of Christ. His work is finished. Just as the resurrection of Christ is the evidence of the efficacy of the death of Christ as atonement. This is not to say that Pentecost has no existential dimension or contemporary relevance, but it does mean that we should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost than that we will experience a personal Jordan, wilderness, Gethsemane, or Golgotha. While such language has often been popularly employed, it is theologically misleading. Pentecost itself is no more repeatable than is the crucifixion or the empty tomb or the ascension. Repeating what is unrepeatable. If you're repeating what is unrepeatable and consequently di diminishing it, if not actually denying it, its true significance. All right, so Pentecost is a once for all event that is epoch shifting and is no more repeatable than the temptation, life, and death of Jesus Christ. 